0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show for the courageous discussion of difficult subjects. Tonight is the fourth in an ongoing series about shame. Tonight we're going to be focusing on the relationship between privacy and shame. My guest is Jana Malamud-Smith. Jana is a writer, a psychotherapist in the Boston area. She's the author of three books, most recently the book My Father is a Book, a memoir of Bernard Malamud. But her prior book, which is the one that has inspired this conversation, is Private Matters in Defense of the Personal Life. Welcome to Safe Space, Dana. Thank you. So we'll define our terms uh, in a minute, but before we do that, I actually want to start on a more personal note, which is just to ask you, how did you come to this subject? Most people aren't drawn to the subject of shame, <laughs> 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 needless to say. And... um how? What is the personal res- re- resonance for you about privacy and shame?
1: Well, it, that's a big question, and I think that the uh, probably um, best way into that would be to say that I think I actually came became more aware of shame because I became so interested in privacy. And I th- became interested in privacy, I'm sure, for a bunch of reasons, but the most obvious one was that when I was... Sixteen, my father went from being a sort of moderately well-known writer to suddenly, in 1967, um, a very famous writer. So I guess I was 15, Um, and this even if you're a famous writer, it's sort of like being um, a big tadpole. In a, fish, in a small pond, um, it isn't like it's earth-shattering, but in the circles that we lived in, it suddenly changed who I was in the world in a way that I had no control over, and I became Malamud's daughter, and everywhere I went um, in the small world I traveled in, I was Malamud's daughter. And, you know, there are great things about being the child of an accomplished person, and I don't want in any way to diminish that. But I think what it does is it's like living um, with a light bulb that's so bright in the room that you can't see much of anything else. And so I became interested in privacy as a way of creating a curtain between myself and that light bulb so I could begin to figure out, you know, I was... Just at that point in life where one is trying to figure stuff out about one's own life, and I became interested in trying to figure out, you know, who I was apart from this really bright light that um, had not only uh, kind of shone brightly in the room, but that had um, been a focus of intense interest in our family. Um, you know, when somebody is very uh, talented and ambitious and driven and and uh, becoming accomplished. Um, their their fire burns up a lot of kindling, a lot of wood, to keep it going. And so oftentimes a person's accomplishment draws a lot in a family. And in order, therefore, to begin to know myself better, I wanted some privacy. And so when I, years later, started writing about privacy, it was partly to go back and try and figure out what that had been about. Um, and secondly, at that moment, um, when I actually started writing the book, The the thing I was struggling with is that my father had died, and um, biographers were wanting to write about him, and I my mother really didn't want biographers writing about him or particularly her, I think, and the family, and so I was trying to figure that out as well.
0: Right. So in a way, you were trying to protect your interest was twofold for your privacy, and finally about how to honor his.
1: Um, That's right. I don't think it was so much his. I I think my father um, was really pretty content with the idea that after he died, um, his privacy didn't matter to him, and he had ferociously protected it throughout his life for a whole bunch of complicated reasons. Um, partly because there was a lot of pain in his life and a lot of things that caused him intense shame, uh, but partly because as a creative writer, um, he wanted his life to be the the farm, the acreage from which he harvested all of his fiction, and he didn't want it out there as biography. He wanted it to be his, his place to go to richly in his own mind, um, and he didn't want it to belong to the world, but he also felt that after he died, that was fine. So the privacy I was much more interested in after he died was my own, my brother's, and my mother's.
0: Yes, and it sounds like in some ways particularly your mother's, because she was more against anything being exposed.
1: Yeah, I think that my mother's was very important, and uh, I, th- I think that uh, she really felt she didn't want stories told on her while she was in the world. One can
0: understand that, of course.
1: Well, yeah, but there's often, you know, one of my favorite thoughts is that, um, and this really is true about privacy, um, I think it was Hans Bethe, the physicist, who said that um, the opposite of a small truth is a lie. The opposite of a great truth is another great truth. And I think that, that those two competing truths in our family life were on the one hand this great wish for privacy, and all that privacy provides, which you and I can talk about anon. Um, but the competing truth was that, in some ways, at this point, you know, my father, I think, died hoping his story would get out in the world once he was dead, because unfortunately nowadays in the world of literature and art, um, you have to have a biography out there eventually, or you uh, you lose your your your. Standing as a writer to a certain
0: degree. It's interesting. I mean, it, it comes back to his idea about wanting wanting his private life to be the acreage from which he kind of farmed his creativity. Um, you know, it makes me wonder how would that how would that being public have diminished his ability to to mine it in a way, to farm it? Well, it's a good question. I think what he
1: felt was he wanted complete control. He didn't, you know, so often when you're a fiction writer, people say to you, well, did that really happen? And what's autobiographical in here, and what's creative? And, you know, and those are lines that are really very difficult to draw in life when you think about it. Because yes. they go, in writing it goes back <clears throat> and forth. And I think he didn't want to have people examining him with a magnifying glass because I think he thought it would really get in the way of his creativity and that it would get in the way of his power to voice himself.
0: Yes, and I can almost hear the dismissiveness in that question as if what part of this is autobiographical as if that somehow renders it less creative or
1: right and i think I think it you know I think now that we're in an age um which is fairly recent where we really love memoirs so much, the question has sort of changed a lot but but when he was in his prime. Um, you know, that was a fiercely guarded how you did that and, and how you how autobiographical you were. I was just noticing yesterday in the New York Times a piece about John Updike where really he felt the same way. Um and he really didn't want anybody um talking to him about his life and what he was writing about. And he's a very autobiographical writer. Right. But I think I'm straying us a little bit from the privacy <laughs> shame question.
0: Yeah, so maybe l- just to bring it back, you know, I I think your idea about the two great truths is very intriguing, and maybe that's a good way to to move into just defining our terms about privacy and shame, and and the relationship between those two things. When you talk about privacy, what what do you mean by it?
1: Well, I think that the best definition um, I know of privacy is is one that I got, I think, from Cecilia Bach, where she says that. You know, privacy is control over access um, to material about you and to you and your body and, um, and everything in your domain. So privacy is really having control over what people know about you when, or it's that wish to have control over it, and it's a wish to have control um, over your your body and and uh, you, the things concerned with you.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And how would you define then shame? What's your working definition of that?
1: Well, um uh, my my sort of my pragmatic definition of it is shame is a hugely important human emotion. I, it's just so big that I'm you know, I'm delighted that you're spending time with it because I think that it's so underattended to, and it's such a big part of life. Um, for everybody. And shame is one of those, I believe, basic, hardwired human feelings. I think it's universal. Um, I think it appears, I think it in some ways was given to us as a survival mechanism, but shame is a state of feeling overwhelmed um, by an unbearable self-consciousness. And this is a definition I'm actually taking right now from Judy Herman, who's written so well about shame. Um, It's feeling overwhelmed by unpleasant, um, an unpleasant sense that attention that you don't want is being paid to you in a way that you interpret in some way as negative. Um, it's a sense that uh, you have violated some code, you often aren't sure which one, that makes you unacceptable to the people around you. Uh, it's it's a terribly difficult feeling. Is Anybody who's spent more than a second in it, and all we all have, uh, will testify.
0: Yes, and so wh- now what I'm interested in is sort of looking at the ways in which we want privacy, we want control over access to you know, material about us, motivated by shame versus the ways in which we want that control, not motivated by shame, and, and how you kind of parse that difference in your mind.
1: I'm not sure it's easily parsable because it's so hard to know what's going on with people at, unconsciously in a given moment, but let me just make a, a very simple distinction so we have a visual image for a minute. Great. Um. Supp- supposing um, you have been playing the violin for three weeks and somebody says, you know, you have to give a public concert tomorrow in front of 10,000 people. Right. Um, chances are that that would immediately put you into a shame state i mean it, it's i mean if you cared about this the is violence. the
0: stuff of everybody's bad dreams that's right <laughs> the stuff
1: of everybody's bad dreams which is being forced to show yourself when you're unprepared to go into the public world. You know there are the dreams of not studying for the exam and having or not having done your reading for the Be exam. Naked in the public the, place. The naked <laughs> in a public place. I mean, it's always a state of being unprepared. Yes. that is at the basis of so much of our shame experience. And so let's put you on stage with that violin. It will put me on stage. I won't do this to you with that violin. And you can just imagine um, that it's it's a situation so ripe for shame. On the other hand, supposing you're kind of a talented young violinist and you have a violin teacher and you spend months and months and months learning two or three pieces in private, where in the privacy (laughs) of uh, your bedroom or in the privacy of uh, uh, a practice space or in the privacy of your teacher's uh, living room, over and over again you work on those pieces where carefully you prepare them and carefully you're coached and carefully you're You're told what's getting better and better about them, and then you're told, you know, um, when you're ready, we think it'd be great for you to have a recital with maybe, you know, 100, 150 people there. Well, then, because of this wonderful experience of being able to practice in private, you have a chance to get ready before you go public. And if there's one essential way to grab a hold of, of where privacy is so invaluable to us, I think it's in that image. It's in the, the space that we provide for getting ready in a billion different ways for showing ourselves, you know, whether it's putting on our makeup in the morning um, or picking out the clothes we want to be seen in um, or uh, practicing or um, thinking about what we want to say before we say it. All of those are wonderful um, examples of of the uses of, of privacy, and of which uh, there, there are a bunch of other uses, but I think this gives you something concrete about the shame privacy continuum.
0: It so really th- does. It really does. I mean, you talk about the essentialness of privacy for self-development, absolutely. And, and in a way, the practicing is a form of self-development.
1: That's absolutely right, and I think that that all self-development, in a way, is is a variation on the theme of practicing. You know, whether it's uh, um, simply in noticing and re- noti- having the space in which you can notice repeatedly things about yourself, about your own desires, where you can hear your own voices and and begin to realize things about yourself. Um, now, that doesn't one of the most interesting things about privacy. Um, comes out of the definition by Alan Weston, who was really the great privacy writer in America in the 20th century, I think, or one of the most substantial. And he said, you know what, there are four states of privacy. And he said that the first one is sol- is solitude. And that's the one we always think about if we think about privacy. You know, I want to be alone. Or we think about Thoreau in the woods or, you know, those images of the Marlboro man sitting alone on his horse. And we think about solitude in nature a lot, but solitude is just one state of privacy. Um, the second one that, that Weston um, defined was anonymity. So the sense of going down to the mall, and, or some, some other mall, not your own mall, but a mall where nobody knows you, and just walking around in the crowd or walking on the streets of the city where nobody recognizes you. And you're surrounded by people, but you're in private because you're not recognized. And then the third one is um, reserve, which is the maybe the most basic fundamental form of human privacy. When you're reserved, you're surrounded by people, and you may be surrounded by intimates and people who want to know your business or people who are intrusive. And the great, wonderful thing about reserve is you don't have to tell anybody anything. This might be the, the best human freedom there is, <laughs> uh, which is that no matter how much somebody asks you a question, um, you don't have to answer. You can tell what you choose to tell. And um, this is a profound source of privacy, I think, and one that Weston wisely um, got. And then the fourth one, and I think this is the one that's most paradoxical that people are most surprised by, is intimacy that he defined as a state of privacy. And I think that that's right and and intimacy, you know, is a space where you and someone uh, close to you uh, can have a conversation or make love or touch each other or, um, you know, make mad faces at each other, and mm-hmm. nobody else witnesses that. And so it's a, it's a dyadic privacy that um, allows, and I, the reason I wanted to get to intimacy was when we were talking about self-development, I don't believe that ever goes on in a vacuum. Um, but, but it sometimes um, does require some solitude, but oftentimes what it requires are certain, a variety of kinds of, of intimacies with people Uh, That allow one growth, and so it 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 requires that kind of privacy as well.
0: Even in your example of practicing the violin, there was a coach in that private room with me, helping me get ready. That's right. I, (laughs) I
1: intentionally put a coach in there because I think it's critical.
0: I see. Right. So the the connection there of someone really attuning to you in a non shaming way.
1: That's right. Somebody who's attuned to you, or who has your, who is able to recognize. Um, something about both where you are and where you want to go. I I think that's one of the most lovely human experiences there are
0: probably. Yes, this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Jana Malamud-Smith about privacy and shame. So I want to now switch to some of the inherent risks of privacy. Those four qualities you've described of solitude, reserve, anonymity, and intimacy speak to the kind of Cultivating function of privacy about how it helps us grow and develop, but there's there are clearly some risks about the things that we keep private, the things that go on in private that are kept silent or kept hidden, and I wondered if you could also also speak to that.
1: Sure. Um, first of all, let's make a distinction between privacy and secrecy, and it's it's a little hard to dip, to totally separate them, but they are different, and I think that it, that privacy. Is that shielding away that we do when we want control? And it's often a temporary state. You know, the, As you and I just said, it's when we're getting ready, when we're practicing. Whereas secrecy <clears throat> is intentional hiding, and it, and it can go on forever. And secrecy can become a profound violation of privacy, and I'll kind of circle back in that in a minute. But I just want to make the secrecy-privacy distinction just for mm-hmm. a second more, yeah. which is that supposing... Um, uh, i let's say i am a lesbian and i want to love another woman and i live in a state that prohibits that i get forced to take my private intimacy which i should have a right to and make it secret because if i am open about it i could lose my job and in some countries i could lose my life whereas that need to make it secret comes from the corruption of the culture. It isn't that I want to make it secret. It's that I'm forced into it. And so it becomes a violation of my privacy um, that, that I don't want. So, so too, let's say that I keep a private journal where I write down all my thoughts and feelings, um, and it's just private. I, I might want to use it for my writing. I might want to share some of it with my best friend. I might want to do all kinds of things with it, but it's private and it's mine. But supposing um, somebody, my, I don't know, my uncle, my mom, somebody um, comes and decides that they need to know more about me that I'm not telling them, and they're going to start reading my journal. Well, the second I get wind of that, I'm going to hide my journal and lock it up and make a secret.
0: Or or censor yourself.
1: Or or censor myself, and and therefore become more reserved. Um, But (laughs) in either event, I have to make secrets in order to preserve privacy. Yes, so, just as a distinction, but but what I'm beginning to say, and what I'm trying to say in this, is that privacy is very, very vulnerable to corruption, and that's what makes it dangerous. It's a beautiful human state. It's 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 really what we need in order to have any kind of freedom and liberty. Um, but it's so delicate in certain ways, so that um, in a horrible way, for example, in the privacy of a household, a A parent can abuse a child or can sexually abuse a child. And that's a corruption of the privacy of the family into a secrecy that is damaging to everybody and particularly to the children. So privacy is vulnerable because the fact that we're not under surveillance, which is what lets the privacy happen, we're not being seen in the moment or at least some parts of us aren't being seen. Like with, with reserve, it's just our thoughts that aren't being seen. But with solitude, none of us is being seen. So when we're not being seen, that is both a space for great freedom as in intimacy, but for great potential for corruption.
0: I, I'd like to push it even one step further, if I may, which sure. is, so under, under the cloak of privacy, you know, there can be literal abuse, there can be literal exploitation. In a way, though, this show is dedicated to another form of um, of privacy, which is kind of the silencing born of shame, mm-hmm. not necessarily about concrete acts of violation, although, of course, that's highly relevant, but um, more like stigma, um, things that are so shamed in our culture, we keep silent about them, and, right, and, and to yeah. all the way to a more minor level of sort of, you know, children growing up without their parents ever talking to them about sexuality, or the kind of cloak of silence. Yes. Um, but
1: remember, that isn't privacy.
0: Yeah, so that's maybe another distinction.
1: Right. I mean, that really, to, I mean, the reason that that isn't, I mean, that that isn't to me privacy is that the person who's not speaking doesn't have a subjective sense of choice at that point. You know it's it, they don't they might say, "Oh I'm not telling my story just because I don't want to feel bad, but really, if you ask them you know could you could you talk about this it's it they really can't you know it's just unbearable until they they're ready, and once they're ready, then they're making a choice but but it's it's as if the shame is so intense that it it's taken their words away. And it's forced them into a silence that, to my mind, isn't really what I would call healthy, let's say not healthy privacy.
0: Yes, that's right. No, so in those examples, you're speaking of the parents who, who are unable to speak it. Is that what you mean?
1: Uh, um, well, any person.
0: Yes, any person. Right, so when there's a state of such intense shame, there can be a kind of muteness that comes with it.
1: There's a total muteness that comes with it. And I think that people often don't... Um, can't can't even name what the mutinous is I mean that they they if you say are you just overwhelmed by shame they might be able to say yes but often to them it just sits there um, in a in a terribly painful mutinous and I think then people do a million different things about it they they try to push it away they try to think it doesn't matter they try to tell themselves get over it um, they try to they go numb they shut down um it's it's just a terribly painful human situation.
0: Yes, yeah, so I want to I want to g- come back if 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 that's all right full circle to where we started and and to your your process, you know, for me as a as your reader, I read your book about private matters and you kind of frame the book about your own struggle with privacy as you've told me today about your father and your thoughts about his biography and whether to write it and your own privacy. And then during the book, there you don't come back to it. And then at the very end, you say, yes, it's obvious I've been writing about my father. But in a way, uh, as your reader, I wanted to hear more about the internal struggle about can I give these things words? Uh, is there is there shame involved in talking about some of his personal sorrows? And I, I'd love to hear if it feels comfortable for you. How did you decide to go there? How did you decide to speak some of these things? Did you have to sort this out internally about reserve versus shame inside yourself?
1: Absolutely. And I think that in a funny way, maybe you, by reading Private Matters, you you read the prequel, and I wrote the prequel to the memoir I eventually wrote about my father. And I think that Private Matters was one of many ways that I tried to sort out what for me was an incredibly complicated problem um both about let me let me just start by saying a lot of my own struggle with privacy um was around i mean was around many things as all of ours are but in my case what happened as i became an adult was first of all i um happily married a man named smith um <laughs> so that i and i hid out for years i i learned how to do psychotherapy and i worked in a housing project And my name was Janice Smith, and I really um, went as far away as I could for a while um, from being Malamud's daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also, um, gradually as time went on, learned um, very painfully for myself that I couldn't live without writing. Um, I had tried very hard to pretend that I could um, and that I didn't need it and and all of those things, but it just crept up on me, that my life would not be meaningful to me if I couldn't devote myself to learning how to write as, as part of my life. So a lot of my shame was located in wanting to do something that I knew I could never do as well as my father did, that mm. he had hit such a high mark of talent and success um, that I knew that I was about to set foot into a life where no matter how hard I tried, I would always publicly be seen as less than he was. And for me, that was a big battle of shame, um, was to take on being willing to do and to go public with writing um, that, that would always have this risk in it. Now, fortunately, I became a nonfiction writer, so I stayed out of his immediate <laughs> domain. But, you know, writing is writing. So I think that was one of the struggles um, that was going on. But the second one was, for me, was trying to balance um, what I understood really as my need to tell the story of my father's life, which had been such a huge um, influence on my own, um, and my mother's need not to have that story told while she was alive. And I think that what I, the way I worked it out, which I I am not bragging about because you really never get these things very right, and they, I I think I caused her considerable pain in a couple of years before she died, um, was that I waited till she was well into her 80s. um, And then I both encouraged her to allow a biographer to begin working on his life. And I also, at that point, uh, told her that I was going to write a memoir.
0: And, And how did that conversation go?
1: Well, there were lots of conversations, and I would just say that some went better than others but <laughs> right, <laughs> i hate of course i but I, I mean i'll tell you the worst story uh which is that that after i finished a draft of the memoir um i gave it to her and i said that you um i want you to read this and i want you to tell me um what has to come out and i want you to give me or not give me your permission to publish it yes and um that, that request actually made her very, very angry, and I think she was probably right, because she felt that it was a false question in some way, that she felt she couldn't stop me. She would never stop me from publishing something. That wouldn't be her way. So she felt I had put her in a, in a predicament. Mm-hmm. Um, but she read the book, and it made her furious. Um, and she, just, she was uh, very angry at some of the things that I said about my own experience. Um, and I was so distressed, and after talking to her, that as I was driving home from her apartment to my house, which may maybe 10 miles apart at that point, um, I made a turn across a bridge on the Charles River on a one-way bridge, and I was going the opposite way. Mm. So I was I was perfectly safe, but I did scare a couple of drivers who suddenly saw this car coming at them, and I certainly scared myself. I was going to say. Um, but I think I was just so unconsciously preoccupied by um, the, what felt to me at that moment like just a profound... Um, and painful predicament that it came out in in being too distracted as I was driving.
0: I I can so bring myself there with you in that car, imagining. And did she, before she died, did she come to a place of of more acceptance with it?
1: I don't really think so. I think we made our peace, and we were fond of each other, and, you know, she'd she'd lived with a writer for her whole marriage, so she kind (laughs) of understood all that. And I think that... that, uh, it's interesting. I, th- I think that um, in some ways it worked out for her better than she would have anticipated. I think that people had, you know, she was a very devoted writer's wife in her fashion, and, and I think that um, people had more respect for her than she had anticipated, and I think that that was probably a good thing. But, you know, I think if she d- could have her way, she would have, hope that both the biographer and I could have... Well, the biography came out after she died, actually, but he interviewed her extensively before she died. Um, but I think she wishes that she didn't probably have to have seen that memoir published in her lifetime.
0: Jen, I suddenly realize we're out of time. I'm going to have to stop painfully. There's so much more I'd like to ask you about this. If someone wants to uh, read your book, how, what is your website? What's the title of the memoir of your father?
1: Um, the memoir is called My Father is a Book, a Memoir of Bernard Malamud, and, and it is available probably through Amazon, and my website is uh, is
0: Jana, it's been such a pleasure to have you as my guest. Thank you so much for, for being with me on Safe Space.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is Dr. Anne at WMPG. This has been an interview with Jana Malamud Smith about her book, private matters in defense of the personal life if you'd like to contact me with a future recommendation or suggestion for a show please do so at dranwmpg@gmail.com. at gmail.com. next week i'll be interviewing D- dr donald nathanson also about shame coming up next is money talks with allison